0: This is the podcast on becoming, and I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Perhaps you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming. Please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreoncom unbecomingpodcast or at PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. And, of course, as always, we love to hear from you. One more thing. Perhaps you've already discovered that there's now a video version of On Becoming on YouTube. If you'd like to see where I record, you can take a look. I realize that people listen to podcasts in many different ways, some of which would not be so conducive to watching. I'm thinking of things like driving or doing chores around the house. In any case, though, it's another way to connect. So far, I've presented the basic or essential moves that Nietzsche makes in the process of his own becoming. In upcoming episodes, I'll be unpacking various aspects of that work, such as Nietzsche's views of Socrates, Jesus, and Paul, the role of music in his thought, and what he thinks Christianity should be. But here I want to say a few words on my own journey to becoming a Nietzsche scholar. I do this for a number of reasons. One is that I sometimes get asked how my work comes together. I think this is always an interesting question. If you've never written a long piece of work, it certainly seems daunting. When I was in graduate school, we didn't think all that much about the personal lives of the philosophers we studied. It really wasn't mentioned, except maybe in cases like Descartes, who writes about his own doubts and his desire for certainty, or Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, who writes in the wake of losing his family in the Holocaust. Bear in the mind, by personal life, I'm not talking about gossip or even funny stories about various philosophers. I'm talking about why they wrote what they did, why they wrote on a particular topic and not on others, and how they arrived at their point of view. Some philosophers tell us enough about their own lives so that we have some idea of how they came to ask their respective questions and why they answered those questions in the way they did. The philosopher R.G. Collingwood... In his autobiography, points out that we can understand many things by asking, to what question is this an answer? He speaks of his own experience of living in London and passing the Albert Memorial on a daily basis. To quote him, everything about it was misshapen, corrupt, crawling, verminous. For a time I could not bear to look at it and passed with averted eyes. Recovering from this weakness, I forced myself to look, and to face day by day the question, a thing so obviously, so incontrovertibly, so indefensibly bad, why had Scott done it? To say that Scott was a bad architect would be to burk the problem with a tautology. To say that there was no accounting for tastes would be to evade it by suggestio falsi. What relation was there, I began to ask myself, between what he had done and what he had tried to do? Collingwood doesn't directly answer this question. Instead, he speaks of his work as an archaeologist. He was a philosopher, of course, very definitely, but he was also involved in various archaeological digs. If you're working as an archaeologist, you find various things that are obvious, an arrowhead, a spoon... But you may encounter things that are less obvious which prompts the why question and even in discovering things that are obvious one might still ask you know why are these things here when were they deposited here i first read collingwood's autobiography when i was living in leuven belgium in the square where the train station stands there is a world war one monument at the time it was covered in dirt and probably had never been cleaned it was at least according to me horrific looking. But then I started to think, how else could a monument to World War I look, particularly from a Belgian point of view? Once I was able to see that, something that had merely seemed really ugly to me now made sense. Later, I came across two books of photographs that documented the damage in the town. Most of the city centre was destroyed. But even more important, I discovered that the monument commemorated the deaths of about 200 people who were summarily shot at the place where the monument stands. After the war, the town was rebuilt, complete with a new university library that was paid for by American educational institutions, many of which had their names carved into the stones. There's one for Wheaton College, but I've always assumed it was from the other Wheaton, and I still have no reason to think otherwise. Within two decades, though, much of the town, including this new library, was destroyed all over again. That's called World War II. But that made the World War I monument even more significant, and it made me realize that whatever problems there are with the EU, and of course there are many, finding a way to work together was infinitely better than continual destruction. In what follows I'll say a few words about my own journey as I worked on Nietzsche. As the manuscript of Pius Nietzsche sat on my editor's desk while she located appropriate readers, according to her, there were more comments on the title of that manuscript than on any manuscript she'd ever edited. Pius Nietzsche, people would ask? What's that about? I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear exactly what came next. The terms Pius and Nietzsche, I freely admit, don't go together very easily and sound somehow oxymoronic. People are often confused, or else they laugh, or both. I confess, if you were to have said something like this particular world combination to me a couple of decades ago, I would probably laugh myself. For it actually took me some time to arrive at the idea that, yes, Nietzsche really is pious, in his own way, of course. But I should immediately go on to add that his own way isn't really all that far from the traditional Lutheran pietism of the sort in which Kant would have been steeped. But I'm getting ahead of myself. My own engagement with Nietzsche came from teaching Thus Spoke Zarathustra to Wheaton College undergraduates. You might expect that, Wheaton being Wheaton, that my students would have reacted in some negative fashion. Well, I did encounter some students who had this response. I found that most students, even in the heart of evangelicalism, were really interested in what he had to say, though I have to confess it was often an interest mixed with some trepidation. Not surprising. But once they're willing to listen, they often found many of the critiques of Christianity not just right, but also truly compelling, as do I. But it was when I began to teach the later texts, particularly those of 1888, which I now confess are my favorite, that I began to wonder more and more about Nietzsche himself. Nietzsche became an even more intriguing figure to me. First of all, there's all this talk of decadence in these texts. Socrates is decadent, Wagner is decadent, Paul is decadent, Jesus is decadent, though he strangely lacks a ressentiment, which is for Nietzsche a natural accompaniment for decadence. Nietzsche himself is a decadent, and the very trajectory of Western civilization turns out to be one of decadence, even if Nietzsche thought his age had particularly succumbed. Moreover, when Nietzsche writes the preface to the work *The Case of Wagner*, he says nothing has preoccupied me more profoundly than the problem of decadence. One hardly knows what to make of this. Nietzsche is known for all sorts of themes—will to the power, or the Overman, or the Übermensch, nihilism, etc.—but decadence is hardly one of the hallmark of Nietzschean themes. If you were to ask even the most professional philosophers about decadence in Nietzsche probably most would wonder what you were talking about. Yet Nietzsche not only makes this statement, but all of his works of 1888 are obsessed with this theme of decadence. Indeed, I was delighted when I encountered Daniel Conway's Nietzsche's Dangerous Game, Philosophy in the Twilight of the Idols, which is clearly the most sustained treatment of decadence. For it showed me that somebody else out there was taking this issue in Nietzsche seriously. Most commentators mention it either in passing or in brief, But Nietzsche's own statement seems to beg for much more sustained and systematic treatment. Of course, it also made me realize that it was too late to write the major book on decadence in Nietzsche, since Dan had already written it. Yet there were at least two other aspects of Nietzsche's thought that began to nag at me. The first was Nietzsche's clear employment of distinctly religious language. For instance, at crucial points in Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche resorts to very traditional religious terminology albeit employed with a surprising twist. At first, I just brushed that off. Given that Nietzsche is a linguistic master, one can hardly suggest that this is some sort of coincidence or poor word choice on his part. Thus, when Nietzsche speaks of, and now I'm quoting, a spirit who has become free, that stands with the glad and trusting fatalism in the midst of the universe with a faith, he italicizes this to make sure we get it, that only the particular is to be rejected, that as a whole everything redeems and affirms itself, such a spirit does not negate anymore. In saying that, he seems to be signaling something. Indeed, in the very next sentence, he says, such a faith is the highest of all possible faiths. I have baptized it with the name of Dionysus. Of course, he is not talking about the sort of faith in the sense that he calls the conditional yes and no, which he simply calls Carlisleism, nor the faith of Christianity that involves redemption. Instead, he means something like the religiosity of the really ancients, the very noble type of person, who is able to, as he puts it, face nature and life without fear and with a resounding yes. Then again, in Twilight of the Idols, he goes on to say that all this is signified by the name Dionysus, I know no higher symbolism than this Greek symbolism, the symbolism of the Dionysian rites. To them, the deepest instinct of life, the instinct for the future of life, for the eternity of life, is experienced religiously. The very way to life, reproduction, as the holy way. There is more of this kind of talk, but you get the picture. Here is Nietzsche the antichrist or the anti-christian and he's seemingly railing against religion in general but here he's using very explicitly religious language the other thing that started to intrigue me was the way in which music played such an important role in nietzsche's thought it's not just that nietzsche says that life without music would be a mistake think about that that's a kind of strange comment to make But it's also that music is so important to life itself for Nietzsche. In The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche sees the cure for Socrates to be that of taking his daemon seriously when it says, Socrates, practice and cultivate the arts. Just to be clear here, Nietzsche spoke of the daemon. Yes, that's the word from which we get demon. But Socrates is not talking about an evil figure, but a good one. People often assume that a philosopher wouldn't believe in that sort of thing, but the reality is that Socrates seems very convinced that his voice is speaking to him, telling him that she should practice music. Of course, since the Greek term musica includes philosophizing, Socrates simply assumes he's already doing this. Yet Socrates has this dream over and over again throughout his life, and it's only while he's waiting his death sentence that he finally wonders if maybe it might be literal music that he was being exhorted to practice. On Nietzsche's read, the music practicing Socrates, was the answer to the Socrates locked in dialectic. And there's every reason to think that Nietzsche continued throughout his life to think this was the correct answer. Looking back on the text in Homo, Nietzsche says, In the end, I lack all reason to renounce the hope for a Dionysian future of music. Well, this is a remarkably strong thing for Nietzsche to say, but it reflects the sheer power that Nietzsche thinks music has, a power he simply doesn't accord the other arts. I should add here that Nietzsche's view is basically that of the German romantics, who also thought that music opens a world to us that the visual arts cannot. For a time I envisioned writing a book on Nietzsche and music, but then in the meantime someone, uh, Georges Libert, wrote one with exactly that title. In a way, this freed me up to write on something much more broad than simply music and Nietzsche. There's a chapter on music in pious Nietzsche, and that chapter plays an important role in the overall argument of the book. But there is so much more to the book than that, as the title indicates. As a side note, Libert's book, as fine as it is, ultimately fails to work out what he himself speaks of as, and here I'm quoting, the decisive importance of music, in fact, had for the economy of Nietzsche's thought. So I reckon that there's still the possibility of writing a book on Nietzsche and music, albeit with a different title. But what really drove pious Nietzsche was encountering that shocking prayer written at tender age of 13. Hollingdale includes a particular prayer in his biography of Nietzsche, and when I came across that passage, I nearly fell out of my chair. I'd always known that the young Fritz was a particularly pious boy, but now I was left with a new question. To almost all Nietzsche commentators, it's simply a given that Nietzsche has simply and utterly departed from Christianity. To be sure, Jaspers, Karl Jaspers, complicates things in his little book titled Nietzsche and Christianity, where he makes clear that such a clean break simply doesn't exist. As he puts it, I want to show how much of a Christian he is, this Antichrist Nietzsche. That there was something very Christian or perhaps one might say, all too Christian, about Nietzsche, seemed clear to me. I had long wondered exactly what to make of the various aspects of the anti-Christian, in which Jesus is both praised, though hardly unequivocally, and Christianity is held up as a real way of life, that it is just as possible to live now as it was then. Obviously, Nietzsche could use the term Christendom to mean more than one thing, And here we come to an interesting difference between German and English. In German, Christentum is the word for Christianity. But in English, Christendom means something quite different from Christianity. A difference that allows English-speaking Christians, for example, to speak positively about Christianity and negatively about Christendom. That is, as the actual embodiment that fails to live out true Christianity. Now, in the Antichrist or Antichristian, Christentum is uniformly bad. When Nietzsche wants to say something positive about Christianity, he usually uses terms like the kingdom of heaven. Yet back in a letter to his childhood friends Krug and Pinder, dated April 27, 1862, Nietzsche writes, uh, this is age 17, so only four years after that very pious prayer that I used in the previous Episodes. Christianity, Christentum, is essentially a matter of the heart. The main teachings of Christianity only relate the fundamental truths of the heart. To become blessed through faith means nothing other than the old truth that only the heart, not knowledge, can make happy. This Christentum clearly was something quite different from that of the anti Christian or anti Christ. But of course, this Christianity was hardly an orthodox Christianity. True, what I've just quoted sounds orthodox enough, but then Nietzsche goes on to say, that God became man only shows that man should not seek his blessedness in eternity, but instead ground his heaven on earth. What's remarkable with this passage is that already at age 17, Nietzsche has moved to an interpretation of Christianity in which it is not really about anything metaphysical or supernatural, but simply a way of being, having a heart that is in the right place. This itself is already a this-worldly sort of religion. In this sense, Nietzsche is really an inheritor of the Lutheran pietistic tradition, as depicted by Philip Jakob Spener in his Pia Desideria of 1675, which makes Christian belief an almost totally, this worldly sort of thing. One stretches in vain to find anything in, in this text that's otherworldly. Although later Pietists were to put great emphasis on both some kind of conversion experience and legalistic practices, one simply doesn't find these in Spain. And one does not find them in Nietzsche's idea of Christianity, at least of this early period. In that sense, I think Nietzsche is truly an inheritor of Spener's sort of pietism. Given that, it makes Nietzsche's later move to what I term his Dionysian pietism both easier and virtually a logical extension of his earlier Lutheran pietism. Given how Nietzsche so early on, by age 17, identifies true Christianity with this worldly pietism, it's not hard to see why Nietzsche could, in good faith and complete honesty, write to his friend Peter Gost as late as July 1881 that Christianity, and I'm quoting, is the best example of the ideal life I have really come to know. I have pursued it from my childhood on, and I do not think my heart has ever dealt meanly with it. If one is thinking that Nietzsche means standard Christianity here, then he sounds simply disingenuous. But if one defines Christianity as a this-worldly conception of life, then it makes good sense for him to say this. Christianity as a way of life, modified by Nietzsche in some ways to be sure, could be a way for Nietzsche even to live. Even as late as the Antichrist or Anti-Christian, 1888, so that's only seven years later than that uh, uh, letter that I just quoted from, Nietzsche is able to differentiate this kind of Christendom from that which he finds both false and odious. He says, I go back, I tell the genuine history of Christianity. It is the false, to the point of nonsense, to find the mark of the Christian in a faith. For instance, in the faith in redemption through Christ. Only Christian practice, a life such as he lived, who died on the cross, is Christian. Such a life is still possible today for certain people, even necessary. Genuine, original Christianity will be possible at all times. Not a faith, but a doing. Above all, a not doing of many things. Another state of being. Although Nietzsche himself uses the word faith, Glaube, to describe his later thought, here the point is that Christianity is really about how one lives, not some doctrine that one believes. And in this claim, I think he is more right than not. Put otherwise, reading Nietzsche helped me to see that the vision of Christianity that was given to me by evangelicals was problematic in many ways. It was not just that Christianity as Nietzsche would have known it, and as we often know it today, would have come with all sorts of metaphysical overtones and doctrines that were indeed very otherworldly. It's that Christianity itself began as a way of life, even being known as the way So Nietzsche's right to insist that the early church is a group of people who gather together to live out Jesus' teachings. As to doctrine, the early Christians had, well, very little, and even that would have been quarreled about. Of course, Nietzsche himself insists, and now I'm quoting, There have been no Christians at all. His point being that Christianity was already compromised when Jesus' followers attempted to live out his teachings immediately after his death. Nietzsche may be wrong about that statement, but it's worth thinking about the extent to which he might be right. Although there is a vast array of Nietzsche literature, what I've never seen was an attempt to take these various elements, this obsession with decadence, Nietzsche's early pietism, and also late talk of faith and baptism and the like, and his obsession with music, and put them all together. I began to think that this particular combination, and of course I do include other elements, might be a way of getting at what Nietzsche was ultimately attempting to do, since each of these aspects seems so important to Nietzsche. My argument was, and is, that Nietzsche is in effect making what I would call a religious move. That is, he is invoking a new deity, laying out a new faith, and even calling for new rites. The deity is obviously Dionysus, but what is Nietzsche's Dionysian pietism? Probably the simplest version is as follows. My formula for greatness in a human being is amor fati, that one wants nothing to be different, not forward, not backward, not in all eternity. Not merely bear what is necessary, still less conceal it. All idealism is mendaciousness in the face of what is necessary. But love it. Nietzsche calls the embracing of amor fati redemption. He says, to redeem those who have lived in the past and to transform every it was into an I wanted it thus. That alone do I call redemption. It is to move to a truly this-worldly piety in which this world and life, as we know, are revered. Incidentally, a piety that isn't all that different from the one that Nietzsche identifies with Christianity back in 1862. Nietzsche, of course, thinks that life is simply intrinsically valuable, and that any attempts to say something like, life is valuable because, simply undercut life's own value. That, for Nietzsche, is simply an article of faith. You either believe it or you don't. And if you start adding anything to this basic belief, then you simply don't believe it. In other words, Nietzsche rejects any formulation along the lines of life is good because fill in the blank. Because he thinks life needs no justification and that trying to justify it undermines it. How does one get to the place where one really believes such a theory, though? Philosophers normally think that believing is not something you can will yourself into doing. Put otherwise, you can't make yourself believe what you think is false. But might it be possible to see the world differently? We've talked many times of Nietzsche's talking about learning to think and feel differently. And that's what, of course, he needs to do to adopt his own Dionysian pietism. Here we can say that music would clearly be helpful to Nietzsche. There is quite a bit to be said on this. Um, As I said above, I still think a book on Nietzsche and music would be in order. So what I will say here will naturally be very sketchy. Although Nietzsche never speaks of decadence as falling out of rhythm with life, I think that way of defining decadence fits perfectly with what he sees decadence as being. Well, decadence for Nietzsche may not be exactly the same as, and here I'm using some terms, but I'll just use them in English, that Nietzsche uses, degeneration, decline, nihilism, and romantic pessimism. They're all strongly connected. And Nietzsche's definition of decadence, likewise, sounds very much like nihilism. He says, instead of naively saying, I'm not worth anything anymore, the lie of morality says in the mouth of the decadent, nothing is worth anymore. Life isn't worth anything. It is hard to imagine a stronger definition of nihilism than that life isn't worth anything. So decadence is falling out of rhythm with life not loving life with all of one's being. Not surprisingly, Zarathustra's encounters with life are dancing encounters, as we saw in the previous episode. To really learn to love life, Zarathustra must learn to dance with her, and let her lead. Nietzsche needs music to transform his being. Again, of course, the ancient Greek term for music includes philosophy and culture, but it likewise includes what we would term music. But all of this led me to a further problem. If there is any philosopher in modern times who thinks that philosophizing should have very practical consequences, it's Nietzsche. So does Nietzsche in his own life actually live out this Dionysian faith? Does he actually embrace life in all of its vicissitudes with a true amor fati? Indeed, given that the philosopher Pierre Hadot has convincingly argued that the very idea of philosophy as a way of life is characteristic of all ancient philosophy, and the way in which the emphasis on the virtues be common in moral philosophy, shouldn't whether someone actually lives out a theory make some sort of difference? My argument was that Nietzsche ultimately fails in his project, though that doesn't necessarily invalidate the project, in the same way that those who follow Jesus and strive but fail to live out that fully invalidates the basic idea, as Jesus puts it. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let me conclude here with the conclusion of my book, by Nietzsche. Perhaps it is only in his madness that Nietzsche finally reaches the Dionysian. It is not merely that he signs a number of his letters as Dionysus, or even that he claims to have become Dionysus. Rather, it is his signing of other letters as the Crucified and saying, I have also hung on the cross that symbolizes the greatest change. For if he can affirm even the crucified, then he's really reached the profoundest level of yes-saying that characterizes the Dionysian. To be able to affirm even Christianity, against which he has railed so vehemently, is finally to become truly Dionysian and have left all resentment behind. But, of course, the price he has to pay to reach the Dionysian is not his soul, but his sanity. Yet that suspension of sanity may be characterized as Nietzsche's own Dionysian mystical experience. Assuming that sanity, little reason, is what has prevented Nietzsche from becoming truly Dionysian, then it must be suspended, perhaps even abandoned. If the cult of Dionysus is about the suspension of reason and giving oneself over to Dionysic drunkenness and mystical self-abandon, that's from how Nietzsche puts it, then Nietzsche would only reach the highest level of the Dionysian by leaving reason behind it. As he puts it, singing and dancing man expresses his sense of belonging to a higher community. He has forgotten how to walk and talk, and he's on the brink of flying and dancing, up and away into the air above. His gestures speak of his enchantment. He finds himself to be a god. He himself now moves in such ecstasy and sublimity as once he saw the gods move in his dreams. Precisely in such a state of enchantment is how his friend Overbeck finds Nietzsche in those early days of January 1889. Nietzsche both danced and improvised at the piano, accompanying himself with outbursts of wild ideas. Not surprisingly, Overbeck interpreted these things as a terrifying picture of a kind of holy frenzy, the kind that is found in antique tragedies. But of course, what would be more Dionysian than to be caught up in an ecstatic frenzy, a truly holy Dionysian frenzy? Earlier on, Nietzsche had considered the role insanity could play in revealing the deepest possible truths about humanity. And here's what he says. In outbursts of passion and in the fantasizing of dreams and insanity, a man rediscovers his own and mankind's prehistory. He who, as a forgetter on a grand scale, is wholly unfamiliar with all this, does not understand man. As Nietzsche goes on to say, those who do not understand madness do not understand humanity. So in madness, Nietzsche may have found his new rhythm after all. Of course, just as the rhythm of the ancient Dionysian cults was inexplicable, so the rhythm of the insane Nietzsche is beyond the realm of rational understanding, and thus would simply appear to be madness. Yet given Nietzsche's exaltation of rapture and abandon, such a transgressive transformation would seem to be the very culmination of Dionysian piety. To be transformed in such a way that one is literally outside of oneself is perhaps the only route left to the decadent Nietzsche. But how does Nietzsche read this place of being beyond? On the one hand, Pierre Klasowski argues that a kind of chaos is present in Nietzsche from the beginning. Thus, on this view, Nietzsche's insanity is the end of a lifelong trajectory, the telos of the one who wishes to be truly Dionysiac. On the other hand, Cynthia Crawford suggests, though certainly does not assert, that Nietzsche's madness was perhaps a simulation designed as the perfect culmination of a Dionysian philosophy. It would, of course, be difficult to adjudicate either way, There's every reason to think that Nietzsche truly went mad. But feigning madness as a way to become Dionysian is at least within the realm of possibility. Perhaps Nietzsche believed that it was the only way to overcome his own personal decadence. In any case, Nietzsche writes a letter to his friend, Gast on the 4th of January, 1889, consisting of just one sentence. Sing me a new song. The world is transfigured, and all the heavens rejoice. And he signs that letter, The Crucified. It would seem Nietzsche has finally found his new rhythm. That's all for today's episode. We've considered Nietzsche's own journey by way of his prayers and tears. I hope you found thinking about Nietzsche helpful in your own life. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be beneficial in your becoming, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you join us for the next episode.